when we feel that light connecting with this sort of universal experience, I feel like that's what humans are sort of striving for. This podcast is sponsored by my friends at Ample. Ample is a new entry in the healthy eating space that has created an incredibly convenient and super healthy complete meal in a bottle, an MRE or meal ready to eat. Just add water and chow down. Now this is more than just a protein shake. It is a complete meal, including the fiber and healthy fats, as well as the pre and probiotics that you need for proper gut health and protein and carbohydrates in the right combinations from the right sources. I love these things, and I have one a day before my morning training. If you want to learn more, go to amplemeal.com. And the founder, Connor Young, knows how much I love Ample and is offering listeners a 15% discount off of your first order by entering the code UNBEATABLE15. Now, it seems I'm constantly on the go now, traveling, training, speaking engagements, SealFit Academies. It's relentless. But Ample makes it so much easier for me to stay on track with healthy eating. And it will keep you on track while you're on the road too or at home. So go to AmpleMeal.com, place the code UNBEATABLE15, that's UNBEATABLE15, to get a 15% off on your first order and try out this amazing product. Hoo-yah, Divine Owl. Hey folks, Commander Mark Devine coming back at you with the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Appreciate your time today. Hope everything's going well. Hope you've been training hard, staying focused, feeding that courage wolf. Today we have an awesome episode with someone who feeds the courage wolf pretty much every day and has done some pretty pretty interesting things. But before I introduce Eric Weinmeier, let me remind you that if you haven't rated the podcast, then it is very helpful to rate the podcast because then other people can find it. So that can only be done on iTunes. You can't really rate it on our website. So you, you find it on iTunes, then uh, you can rate it there. And then if you'd like to listen to it from the website, you can go back to unbeatablemind.com slash podcast. Also, if you're not on our email list, then you could be missing out on some cool things that we are doing that we only announce via email. All right. Having said that, let me say I'm super stoked to talk to Eric Weinmeier today. Eric is uh, has he's a mountaineer. He's climbed all seven of the seven summits, or he's climbed seven summits. I'm going to ask Eric as soon as we get on if that's the same as the Seven Sisters. I'm not really sure. Uh, he's also solo kayaked close to 300 miles of the Grand Canyon of the Colorado River. He's climbed El Capitan, and all of that. You know, we've talked to a lot of other um, you know extreme athletes and elite athletes, and you know that's all very impressive if you have all of your faculties, and we assume most people have all of their faculties, and Eric certainly has all of his faculties, but he is missing one of uh, the, the key you know, senses that we rely on, and that's his eyesight. So that is an incredible thing to me, and um, you know, for us at Unbeatable Mind, I'm really excited to talk to Eric about you know, how he cultivates uh, imagery and navigates the inner domain, right? Because what we, uh, one of our core tenets here is to master the inner domain to develop the potential to succeed in the outer. Eric, thanks so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast and chatting with us. Awesome. I'm really excited as well. It's great to meet you. Yeah, likewise, likewise. So you're out in Colorado right now and you said you're in the middle of a snowstorm. Um, yeah, that's why I love Colorado. It's May and there's a blizzard happening out incredible. my window. 
and everybody's going to go up and ski backcountry ski this weekend. So that's oh, what's man. so cool about I, where I, I live right now for the kids from Rockies. Yeah, I'm officially jealous right now. That is so cool. <laughs> I absolutely love Colorado. I used to own some land there, and then it just we never went to it. It was down near Telluride, and we never went to it. It was just too hard to get to from California, so I let it go, but I pine for it. I pine for it. What yeah, Telluride's a little little off the beaten track for sure. <laughs> it is. You know what it was? Um, you know, when you if you fly in there, it's it's like mm-hmm. you know, you have a fifty percent chance of coming out alive with that airport, you know what I mean? It's like you're flying into the, a cliff. Up right into that deep valley, right? I <laughs> yeah. Think. It's insane. <laughs> It scares yeah. the shit out of us. So anyways, uh, <laughs> here I am, a Navy SEAL, saying so I'm going to get this shit. You know, I, I made it through 20 years as a SEAL, but flying into Telluride scared me. So, Eric. No, I'm, here you, I'm, a, I'm like an adventurer, you know, but I don't see myself as like a crazy risk taker. I'm very careful about risk. So I, yeah. I 100%, I told my wife the other day, um, I said, hey, come and sit in the hot tub with me because uh, I need somebody to, you know, partner with me in case like I slip in the hot tub and bang my head. <laughs> <laughs> and I drown. And she's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> then maybe you shouldn't be doing hot tubs. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. I actually, uh, I, I think that's pretty funny. Yeah. So I love this. We want to come back to that notion of, that's an important point. The notion of you can, you know, you can take what seem or appear to be, you know, unbelievable risk. But if, if you do the risk management and the planning and, and the execution effectively, and, and you use the crawl, walk, run approach in your training, then those risks, you know, are d- dramatically reduced, right? They're yes. very calculated. So talk to me and us about what was it like growing up? Because what I understand from my producer, Allison, that you actually had full eyesight until the age of 13. So you grew up like, as a normal kid. Was that in Colorado? And tell us about that early childhood. What were your influences and, and kind of what was that transition like for you when you got your disease, your eye disease? Well, I, I did. I grew up in Connecticut. Okay. And uh, I could see a little bit. I could see well. I mean, I, but, but believe it or not, I was legally blind. So that oh, means no like kidding. you could see from 200 okay. From, from you could see at 200 feet what I could see at 20 feet. But the reason what you're saying is accurate is because I lived a totally normal life. Like I could read books and print. Mm-hmm. I could I could see things. I could see the board. Uh, I could run around. I I rode my friend's uh, motorcycle. Okay, his little uh, YZ50 or his his 80 around. Right. We'd fly around through the woods and you know. And I was the one maybe bleeding and a little bit more because <laughs> I'd trip more and I'd slam into trees more. Right. But yeah, jumping off of rocks um, in the piles of leaves and just having this incredible childhood. And my dad noticed that my eyes weren't tracking very well. Mm-hmm. And so that led to a series of doctor visits. And then uh, the doctor finally found one who was a retinal specialist that I was born with this incredibly rare genetic eye disease. It's like winning the lottery. Man, it's sort of the opposite of winning the lottery. Right. And I uh, and I'd be blind by teenager, and there was no cure, and I just blocked it out. I just completely, you know, you, you know, and I'm preaching to the choir here, but I mean, the brain, the brain is so powerful. It mm-hmm. can, no matter what the evidence is, the brain can, you know, convince you of whatever it wants to. So I would I just, agree. I just went full denial mode, and uh, even though I was losing my sight through middle school, I just found a way to make excuses and. And then about a week before my freshman year in high school, I was blind to the point where I couldn't see to take a step. And I was like, How, what do I do? You know, and that's when it's sort of like you feel like you get hit in the head with a sledgehammer. Yeah. 
So you knew, or you were told, even though you went into denial, that it would deteriorate and you'd be ultimately blind. Now, I guess that's very different than just thinking that your eyesight isn't perfect and maybe someday it'll be correctable. That is a yeah. drastic no, but I, I knew it was going to be, I knew it was going to go. And, but you know, people were like, you're going to go blind. You need to prepare yourself. And it was like, you know, I, I mean, not to be too dramatic, but I mean, it was like somebody saying you're going to die, you know? And you're just yeah. like, well, I don't know what to think about that. What does that mean? So I just, I, my brain, it was too much. It was overwhelming. So overwhelming that the easiest thing for the, for me to do was just to deny it. Yeah. And I was, I could see a tiny bit out of my right eye and for a little bit of time. And I was just like falling off of docks. I, I didn't want to use my cane. I was super stubborn. I didn't want to learn Braille. I didn't want to, cause that, you know, that would be defeat. That would mean like I'm, I'm blind now. And I was like, screw that. I'm not going to be a blind person. And even though my eyes weren't working. Right. And was so, there any point in time that you took on kind of a victim attitude where you were like, why is the world doing this to me? where you had any kind of defeatism or were you always kind of in front of it saying this, I'm not going to let this ruin my life kind of thing. So yes and no. So yes, I felt upset. I felt angry. I felt frustrated. And, you know, like, you know, a couple months ago I came out with this book, no barriers. And that was one of the things I was fascinated by. Like I wanted to find out like how people, when things happen that derail them, how do they react? And I right. found that most people I met, like who are really quote unquote successful people who have done really pioneering things, they're like me, they got frustrated, but they didn't get like bitter to the point where they felt like the world was this terrible place. Mm -hmm. And that was the, definitely the case for me. I felt angry, but that anger was like a fuel, you mm -hmm. know? And that becomes a good fuel. It's a reckless fuel, right? It's kind of unsustainable mm -hmm. in the long run. Eventually, it has to be replaced by something else. But anger is a good fuel to get you out of that hole. And so, um, unfortunately, though, there's repercussions to that fuel because right. you alienate people. Like, you know, people try to help me and I just, right. you know, I wouldn't let them. And, you know, so I was dark and I was in this sort of crevasse and I couldn't figure out how to get out of it. So definitely that anger was like a fuel to that wanted to, I wanted to sort of figure out what I could still do in the world. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, and, and, you know, I have often had people ask me about, you know, whether anger could be good. And, and I always tell them, yes, to some degree, if you use it properly, anger can be very focusing. Right. And so yeah. I, it might have a sense that it really focuses you. And I love that notion of it as a fuel. It kind of is, you know, when you're stuck in a rut like that, it really is great fuel to break inertia. But like you said, yeah. it is a, it is a dark, it's a negative energy. So if you, if you linger in it for too long, you know, yes. it can do more damage than good. So you have to figure out a way to, to get out of that anger and kind of like, you know, find it into determination, right? Or purpose. And I also had fear, you know, right. I mean, fear was like powerful, you know, yeah. I know in, in Star Wars, you know, Yoda says like, fear is the dark side, but yeah. I had fear. And yeah. I remember sitting in the cafeteria one day after being led there and sitting there and all my friends are across the cafeteria, like having food fights and telling jokes and laughing and just having this great time, just immersed in what it's like, it's supposed to be like in freshman year in high school. And I'm sitting there at this table by myself, listening to all this excitement that I'm not a part of. And I mm. swear that was just intense fear of like, is my life going to be 
this prison, you know, and it's a partly mm-hmm. like I knew somehow it was a partly self-induced prison. Mm-hmm. And I just had no idea how to get across that cafeteria to, you know, being in the thick of things. So, well, and, I got and this- neither did they. They didn't know either. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, so it wasn't friends, just like, you. they're just kids. Right. They don't know how to like bring me in. You know, I right. was so uncomfortable with myself and like, don't help me. And like, so they're like, you know, okay, I won't help you, but I don't know what to do around you. So yeah, it's not their fault at all. It wasn't. And I had really good teachers and really good parents. I was super lucky because they just hung in there and somehow intuitively knew that maybe I'd get through this, yeah. this period of my life. Yeah, that's a, you know, it's not easy for kids to accept help. It's not easy for adults to accept help, is it? You know, I remember trying, I remember, uh, this is a vivid memory of mine from fourth grade on the playground. There was this local kid who was just really struggling. You know, he, he was just a little slower than everyone else. And, and I, and I think I took some pity on him. And so I went over to try to help him out and he punched me in the face. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I learned a valuable lesson. You know, he wasn't ready for, my help, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe my intentions weren't pure, right? Maybe I did feel pity and he, he picked up on that and, and you didn't yeah, want I mean, anyone so, to pity so you. Ego is the, is the problem, you know, and, and, and so it all gets wrapped up in there because yeah, yeah you you don't want, I didn't want to be the, the way I wrote about it in the book was like, you feel like you're like an egg that's been cracked mm-hmm. and you're this gooey, <laughs> disgusting egg laying in the hallway and everyone's kind of stepping around it. And you don't know, they don't, nobody wants to step in this disgusting thing. And you're like, Hey man, I'm, 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 I wish you could see to something deeper than what you're seeing on the surface. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, your ego just gets completely wrapped up in there and that puts you even further, even deeper in that crevasse. Wow. That's fascinating. I can um, relate a tiny bit. I don't tell this story very often, but when I was 17, so I was, you know, three years older than what happened to you. I was diagnosed with melanoma cancer and they told my parents that it was stage four metastasized throughout my body and I had six months to live. And so they didn't tell me that right away, but I soon had all the entire community coming and basically paying their last visit to me, you know, it was the strangest thing, but my, my mind didn't believe it. My mind said, no, that's not, that's not me. That's not right. You know? And so I went into that denial that you were talking about and I never felt like a victim. I actually just felt like that, that it was wrong, that it wasn't accurate, you know, that I was whole. And fortunately I was right. You know? Yeah. I was. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. It's so overwhelming. There's certain things I think, and this, and like my, I know I'm jumping around, but like the no. guy who, one of my kayaking guides, Harlan, he's this incredible kayaker, just this amazing world-class kayaker. And he guided me uh, on a lot of rivers, including the Grand Canyon. And when he was seven, his dad uh, died. He found him in the bathtub and he was just like, his brain was overwhelmed. Like, how does the brain process that? Seeing your yeah. dad yeah. laying face down in the bathtub. It's like, so yeah, he turned into like a chubby kid for a while. And he, you know, it's just the brain gets overwhelmed and that, yeah. that happens. And, and so how you get stuck, unstuck, uh, how you get the brain unstuck is just like a fascinating thing you devote your life to. Right. Yeah. And, and frankly, that's what, you know, that's what it's all about. You have those early childhood influences, some not as traumatic, you know, as what we're talking about, but then you, you spend the next, you know, 50 years trying to unwind it and figure out what it all means. You know, I've, I heard a quote once, I think my wife told me, cause it comes out of the psychology profession that the first five years defend, de, you know, de- determine or define the next 95, you know, and right. you could actually probably say the first 15 years 
define, mm -hmm. you know, the next 95. And especially right. for you, you know, when, when you had to learn how to literally not, you had to learn how to think, you know, clearly, like, how do you, you know, it's hard enough for people to see clearly when they have their eyesight, but without your eyesight, you know, what strategies did you begin to kind of adopt to be able to see clearly your way through the world? Right. And obviously using your inner vision. Well, I think at first I just wasn't, I didn't want to be in that prison. I just didn't want to be there. And that was yeah. scarier. Like, okay, I could see blackness and that was okay. I wouldn't see beautiful things anymore. I wouldn't see people's faces. And yeah, I'd miss all those things. You had but a lot more, of um, in, memories of things though. So yeah. did they stay with you or were you able to nurture those or did they start to, to kind of go away? No, they... I mean, the brain captures some of it. I know what colors look like and so forth, but mm -hmm. like faces are really complex if you think about it, yeah. like where exactly the eyes are and the nose and the cheeks and the teeth and everything. Mm -hmm. it's, so yeah, you you know, so that's one strategy right there that I had to sort of say goodbye. To, mm. to, I had to like kind of have a funeral for it and just say, okay, that is dead wow. in my life. Say goodbye to that. Like, it, you know, people get stuck in the suspended animation and they're stuck. They can't go backwards. They can't go forward. And they're so stuck. And eventually, you know, you got to kill the thing that is holding you back. And right. that was my brain wanting to see. And I could still, when we can talk about about this, you know, my brain still sees internally, but mm -hmm. externally, I was not going to look at a Rembrandt painting and get joy or beauty from that anymore. I had to mm -hmm. say goodbye to that. Mm -hmm. I also had to, I wasn't, you know, I wanted to have excitement and, and I also found this with all the other people that I looked at in this exploration of no barriers, which was I wanted the world to be hopeful, you know, like I, mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to think this journey was like this awful journey where terrible things happen and you just, you wind up, you know, in this prison. You, mm -hmm. I wanted to feel, I wanted to trust that this journey was good. And so like, I, I call it, I, with my kids now, I call it the open heart policy. Mm -hmm. And I know it sounds a little cheesy, but it's it's the greatest thing I've tried to do and I struggle to do it all the time, you know, just trying to keep an open heart, like mm -hmm. saying, okay, you like shitty things happen, but you got to keep your heart open. Otherwise you're just, you're done. You might as well just be done. So I got this newsletter in Braille of a group taking blinds rock, blind kids, rock climbing nice. in New Hampshire. And uh, I'd been blind for a year and I was learning Braille finally. And I said, that sounds so stupid. Who would, yeah, I was blind people, blind people can't climb mountains. And, uh, I signed up. Right. Cause I wanted to, I wanted to see for myself, you know, I was, I wasn't done yet. And so I went called rock climbing and that was obviously that changed the trajectory in my life. Right. What was the first experience like when you got onto the rock, you know, and, and you could feel the handholds and, you know, sense that you were okay that you could do that? Well, I remember going there and you're, you know, you're the, the rehab center had, uh, had hired guides. So they, these guys had volunteered. They were really, so we were in good hands, you yes. know, so we could, so you trust these guides. And yeah, I started feeling my way up the rock face and thrashing and bleeding and grunting my way up this rock face. And I loved it. I loved it so much because I couldn't see. And I wasn't worried about that. Like, you got to get over the fact like, okay, I'm working way harder than a sighted person or mm -hmm. doing things differently than a sighted person. That's okay. You know, we all do our own thing to 
you know, achieve the things we want. So I had to feel it with my hands and feet and, and use them as my eyes mm -hmm. and, and sort of unlock this puzzle in the rock. And it was like so cool because I could feel my way up the rock face and, uh, kind of put my body in all these crazy positions, you know, using leverage and strength and balance. And mm -hmm. I got to the top of this thing and I could, I could hear, I was only probably a hundred feet off the ground, but I could hear over the trees. So mm -hmm. like, you know, blind people use echolocation. Mm -hmm. I could hear the echo sweeping over the valley and I was way up high and I just like grunted and bled my way to the top of this thing. And I felt so great. It was honestly, the only way I could describe it was a rebirth. Yeah. I can see that. Did you feel and experience your other senses expanding as your eyesight went away? Or did you just kind of notice it later on? Or did you not notice it at all? Yeah, I mean, blindness or, uh, communities used to debate this back and forth. Like, do your other senses get better? And yeah. I think they're finding now that, yeah, through neuroplasticity, you know, yeah. like something I've studied, you know, as a non-scientist. Yeah, you're 100%. You're... Uh, the part of your brain, for instance, that processes vision, your visual cortex, it it doesn't just die. It just gets replaced by other information. Right. So I'm listening to things. I'm touching things. And that's actually going into the visual cortex of my brain and creating mm -hmm. pictures in my brain. Mm -hmm. So I can actually, uh, you know, I'm seeing like, you know, right now I'm looking at a computer screen and I, I'm touching it. So mm -hmm. I am envisioning it in my brain right mm -hmm. now. So, yeah, your brain really never stops trying to sort of grasp the world what it what it's like right and, and but you're using other things to do that you know like if somebody dropped a quarter or a penny on the ground i could you i could tell the difference like i can i know what it is because my brain is paying attention to those things right so yeah, yeah you use things you get better at it that's all right now here's a question that is just bouncing around my head right now and, it, and again it's kind of like about the brain and, and the mind, the difference between brain and mind. Mm -hmm. I can, I can see myself or, or imagine myself how you could imagine a laptop because you were able to see a laptop before you went blind. Right. But in the, in your peer group, some of the people that you have hung out with who were blind since birth, can they imagine a laptop? No, I don't think if you could never see you, you don't really, I don't think you have the sense of vision. So you miss some things. And even me, like I, I never saw that well, you know, I could, I could see okay. I couldn't see it well enough to like understand a river or a mountain. The only mountain I remember ever seeing when I could see a little bit was the one in front of the movies, you know, mm. like the Paramount movies, oh, right. uh, yeah. uh, Artisan Rahu. It's a peak. I actually went and climbed it a few years ago. Cool. Um, and, uh, but I remember things like that, but yeah, as a blind person, it's hard to learn things. So you have not only the barrier of blindness, but you have the barrier of not really, it's hard to comprehend things. Like how do you explain a river with eddies and mm. holes and, and, uh, and boils and whirlpools and vortexes and Jeez. like, what the heck, how the would heck? you even grasp at all any of that? So yeah, you sometimes have to, as a blind person, put yourself into that experience and learn kinesthetically. Yeah. But, and the mind will form images of it based upon the, yeah. the kinesthetic experience and the audio experience. Yeah. And I think people blind from birth, they'll, they'll, their brains form an image, but it's not a visual image. It's, right. it's a different kind of image. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's a different type of intelligence, you know, and that, and, and we would probably call that intuitive intelligence. Like, you know, when we 
experience things through our kinesthetic intelligence or, or combination of audio, feeling, sensation. We call that intuition. And for you, that's just reality. Yeah. That's just yeah. the way things are. That's fascinating. And, you know, obviously the habits that you form, you know, like learning how to kayak, you know, for six years I trained right. uh, to kayak big rivers and I had to build all that into my, into my nervous system in right. a way, you know, and, and, you know, I'm not the first person to talk about this, but I mean, I'm definitely confirming this idea that eventually in that learning process, the brain starts to become an impediment. It goes right. beyond the brain yeah. and yeah. you're just, you got to feel this stuff and, right. you know, you got to connect with what you're doing. You got to connect with the river yeah. uh, and be a part of it in a way because your brain just slows you down. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. but the brain's really important in, in that thrashing and bleeding learning stage, but then eventually it actually becomes a, you know, sort of cumbersome. Yeah. I would uh, refine that and say, it's not, it's not so much the brain that slows you down. It's the, it's the thinking aspect mm -hmm. of the brain that throws you down. Trying to think, you can't think your way through down a river. No. Uh-uh. These two things are happening so fast. Yeah. I was talking that... to this about Jimmy, with Jimmy Chin. We met, you know, we talked about him briefly before the show. and Because Jimmy was a martial artist, and I've been a long-time martial artist. And, and there's the, you know, most martial artists don't... I'll make a bold statement here anyways, and I don't know if everyone will agree with me. But most martial artists don't conflate the mind to the brain. Right. We experience the entire body and, and even uh, the energy around us to some, you know, to some extent mm -hmm. as the mind, right? And the ability to receive and, and put out information goes well beyond just that little, you know, fleshy thing behind our, <laughs> cr you know, cranial housing group. And so, That's and, and I, I have a really cool martial arts book that I've been poking my way through that came out of India. And it's, the, it's from the oldest martial art, really kind of known to man. And the, and the title of the book is When the Bodies Have uh, When the Body Is All Eyes and Ears. Hmm. How cool is that as a title? Yeah. When the Body Is All Eyes and Ears or something like that. I think that's great. Yeah. Isn't that cool? So that's kind of what you've experienced. But what you're saying is it, it is really an incremental process. Like learning how to climb a rock first, you know, it's just the tactile experience and then but over time, you know, when you've been on the rock a hundred hundreds of times, it's a whole body experience to find your way up. And same thing with the river, right? Yeah. In fact, you know, you thrash and bleed and they're so overwhelmed. And then sometimes, you know, like I did this one rapid, I'll never forget it. It was called upset and it's got a giant hole in it hmm. and you don't want to go in that hole. It's no. like a, you know, it's just a place you don't want to be. And I was pretty nervous and my guide Harlan told me we're going to scout it and like, don't go into that hole. You've got to stay left. It's very counterintuitive. And, uh, I slowed down my breathing. I just like tried to push that fear to the peripheries, hmm. tried to like, just count the space between breaths, slow everything down. Mm -hmm. You go into this experience and yeah, you're going right smashing through these giant waves. There's a huge Canyon wall on my left that I can hear the waves just completely exploding against this wall mm -hmm. and collapsing back at me. And to the right, there's this massive hole, just like this guttural sound like a and black I'm hole trying to suck you in, <laughs> sucking you down. And I I'm squeaking the line right between these things. And I got through that. And I just remember feeling so part of the river. There wasn't really like me it, and separate from that experience. I was in that river. I was in the waves. I, uh, it was full immersion and, mm. you know, and I think that's what you're striving for. And some of these 
and it's a little addictive. I mean, you literally work for six years to get a minute of this sort of thing. <laughs> that feeling, yeah. And that afternoon, I was just glowing, and it's like you know, I sat there on the beach. I wanted to be quiet, have some quiet time, and and I think that's what certain experiences do. They strip away all that crust, right. all that stuff that's on the outside, all that armor, and they sort of connect whatever that internal light is to the world. And when we feel that light connecting with this sort of universal experience, I feel like that's what humans are sort of striving for. It's a our little glimpse of eternity yeah. or spirituality, you know, and, yeah. and you just feel it because you're connected. Yeah, well said. I mean, I, you just basically defined enlightenment for the modern warrior athlete. You know, I've been a yoga aficionado for, you know, 18 years or so. And Patanjali, who wrote the kind of the definitive text on yoga 5,000 years ago, said that, you know, essentially suffering is caused by the, you know, people separating from what they're observing, right? So the separation between the seer and the seen or the, the witnesser and what's being witnessed is the root cause of suffering. Now, he doesn't mean that you have to merge with it and become a river. What he means is right. that the experience of seeing, uh, experiencing the river and the river all arise simultaneously in your present moment awareness, which creates this experience. And when we separate, yeah. we separate from it, that's what causes attachment and, and, uh, and suffering. But when you merge with it, like you just experienced, when you allow yourself to be just radically present in that moment, allowing the river and you to be kind of one in unity, that's enlightenment. That's bliss. That's flow. That's, you know, a radical peak experience. And so you want to come back to experience that more and more. And yeah, and I don't think you have it, you know, it's like, you know, and I, I wrote about this, this idea that like, after I experienced that rapid, I thought, okay, now I have it. I got it. No, it's right. And then I go back into the next rapid and I got my butt kicked, just destroyed. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. I thought, right. I thought I had this thing now. That's and, the point you know, is if you try to find it, you're not going to find it. Right. right. But so, if you just <laughs> surrender to it, it's there for you. Yeah, so I had to, you know, yeah, exactly. So I had to sort of uh, go back and sort of think about how do I connect back again to this thing? And I think it's like something you're always striving for. But yeah, it's not like, you know, okay, I got it. Now I'm done. Right, yeah. I'm, I'm graduated <laughs> on to the next thing, right? <laughs> we, right? We just disappear from the planet. Poof. <laughs> right. I only publicly support companies and products that I personally use and have found valuable. So I wanted to tell you about Qualia. Now, I'm not a supplement geek. I don't find them useful if I'm fueling properly. But when it comes to my cognitive strength and brain health, I am excited about the emerging industry of nootropic supplements. I've been testing Qualia, designed by my friends at the Neurohacker Collective, for several months now. And it's on the bleeding edge of nootropic research and has become the one supplement that I won't go without on a daily basis. Qualia stimulates what's called broad-spectrum cognitive enhancement, which involves optimizing multiple cognitive variables simultaneously rather than focusing on a single variable. For example, it brings me greater ability to focus and makes me feel more connected while not diminishing my overall awareness of the environment. I experience a systematic enhancement of my brain's ability to take in and process information without any stimulating effect, which would make me feel agitated like caffeine, 
or depleted after the effect wears off. Now, for a busy entrepreneur and athlete like me, it's a no-brainer to invest in my brain health with Qualia. You can get on the Qualia bandwagon with me by visiting neurohacker.com, that's N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com, and use the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R, that's UNBEATABLEMIND15R, to get 15% off the life of your order. Trust me on this one, you won't be disappointed with Qualia. So tell us about the Grand Canyon, because that, that was, you know, you just described, you know, one moment, like a, a minute. And I can see how, like, you, you're on the other side of that black hole of an eddy that, you know, literally is a death trap. And then, I mean, in the case of the Grand Canyon, you've got another 200 miles to go. Yeah. What was that experience like? Well, so, you know, I'd climbed Everest and I'd climbed the seven summits, you know, the tallest peak in every continent, like you had mentioned in the beginning there. And so at 40 years old, I found myself on the side of a river listening to this massive roar below me and my friends teaching me how to kayak. And I remember just feeling so overwhelmed and thinking, you know, I thought climbing mountains was supposed to prepare you for this thing. Yeah, and I right. certainly didn't feel prepared. I just felt scared and, uh, you know, uh, on the Grand Canyon, I would call it uh, dry heaves and toast. Yeah, I would just, <laughs> you know, I would just get so nervous it would affect you physically, you know. And so I had to learn a ton of things. You know, I had to learn how my guides would guide me and what kind of radio system we could use to communicate in these massive rapids and how to what kind of communication system would my friends be yelling at me, you know, kind mm -hmm. of to try to maximize precision. And what kind of team would I surround myself mm -hmm. with for you know, to minimize that risk as we talked about. So there are tons of things. And then it was so different from climbing because I had to change my mind, you know, in a way climbing was a lot of boredom because you're hanging out in your tent and then you go into the, you know, you're sort of climbing step-by-step step up the mountain. There are moments of sort of terror that there are moments of adversity, like you're coming down the mountain in a huge storm and you, you have to sort of take that uncontrollable situation and bring it under control in your mm -hmm. mind. There's a lot of sort of controlling may be the wrong word, but sort of a sense of trying to bring things under control In mm -hmm. kayaking. There's control. Sure. You're influencing your situation. You got to get in the right position and you got to make certain moves. But other times you're riding this massive energy that's so much bigger than you so there were times where you almost had to let go and mm -hmm. say, okay, I'm just going to ride that storm. And that was different for me because it was sort of like letting go in a mm -hmm. way. It was equal influence and letting go. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I never experienced that before, just going into this thing. And I know for the next, you know, uh, you know, 90 seconds, this insane things are going to be happening mm -hmm. to me and I have to react and respond. And if I don't respond and react, right i'm going to draw my friends into a rescue they're going to be over in that mm -hmm. hole trying to like you know get me out of that and mm -hmm. so i i felt a lot of weight on my shoulders at first uh in kayaking i i it, i would say it nearly sort of crushed me mm. i bet it's it's like learning how to um dance or aikido you know aikido like there's times where you're in control and there's times where you just have to let go and and flow and surrender to to it and so i could see that with a river you know you have to you have to own the river when you're getting around 
you know, a dangerous spot, but then you just got to go with a river <laughs> for, yeah. for large swaths of it. And that could be, yeah. I can, that's really hard to learn. And, you know, Harlan, who I thought was like this guru of the river, he'd been down the river, the Grand Canyon, uh, more than a hundred times. Mm. He would say the same thing that I would say to myself when I was going blind. He would say, like, don't see the river as this terrible, you know, demon that's trying to destroy you and crush yeah. you. You got to see the river as a good thing. Mm -hmm. Right. It's an uncertain thing, but you got to sort of trust that this is a good journey. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, if you go in thinking that the river is this evil menace the enemy, that yes. you're fighting against, you're really hurting yourself. You're right. damaging your own ability to flourish in that environment. Yeah, I agree. 100%. You mentioned, you know, controlling your breath earlier. You know, that's w one of the skills that we teach is breath control to really slow down and trigger the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic nervous system so you stay physiologically calm. But what we also note is that it has a profound impact on the brain and its ability to, you know, emit a lower or a more balanced, you know, energy. So that, that results in the experience of being more calm and able to make clearer decisions under pressure. Do you have a specific practice around breath training yourself? I, well, the most important thing I found for kayaking, and I would do this for sometimes the drive up to a river for an hour mm -hmm. as just sitting in the car and I would breathe. I would work on my breathing, sort of conscious breathing. Yes. And I forget like the seconds that I would do it, but I would, you know, breathe in really slow, mm -hmm. hold it in for a while, let it out slow, you know, and just sort of really work on slowing things down. Nice. And then I found that it was a massive advantage when I would get to the river because, yeah, my brain and my mind was just slower, calmer. Mm -hmm. uh, and also actually physically I had, you know, sort of a, uh, pushed a lot of oxygen into my lungs. Right. I could hold my breath a lot longer, right. which is really important in kayaking because you're sometimes holding your breath for a minute right. uh, under something that's just chundering you around. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. So that's that you just described kind of a, a version of our practice we call box breathing, and it does have those really nice benefits. What about self-talk? What kind of dialoguing, internal dialoguing do you use, you know, when you're in those kind of tight spots and also kind of more routinely to keep yourself positive and, you know, kind of yeah. that positive momentum instead of getting stuck in a rut. Well, I'm jumping around a tiny bit here, but I mean, I'll tell you something that I, I does have a point for me. And that is, so I brought my son home. Um, he, his name's Arjun. We brought him home from Nepal. Hmm. And oh, so cool. we brought him home when he was five and you adopted him. Yeah, we adopted. Oh yeah. Him. I have an adopted son. That's cool. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that. He's a great kid. And you know, he learned uh, probably in the orphanage that it didn't really matter if you cried, if you got like fell down and bled and you cried and it's like, nobody's there to get you. So you, mm -hmm. so he, ne he didn't cry. Uh, he also would sort of freeze sometimes and, and, you know, I get it. There's sort of, you know, in that early stage of life we talked about, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's things that happen that create sort of trauma mm -hmm. and he, and he had some, you know, some self doubt and we all do. And, we were racing one day up the sand dune on this river trip. I, my family was on and, you know, he's, and, and Arjun stopped, uh, halfway up the sand dune. And I was like, come on, buddy, you can beat you. I'm fat old man. You can beat me. Come on. And he stopped. And I thought, what the heck? What, you know, that's not like the Rocky movies where, 
You know, he's supposed to speed by me at the last second and win and be jumping up and down. No, he stopped. And I thought a long time about that when I was a teacher for six years. And I remembered this study where it talked about kids with Mm self-doubt. They, you know, a facilitator would give them these really positive messages. The kids with high self-esteem would do better. The kids with low self-esteem would actually not do any better. Mm -hmm. And it was and, and I think they found it was because these kids thought, well, the high self-esteem kids were like, yeah, he's talking to me. I can do better. The low self-esteem kids said, um, yeah, he doesn't know me. He doesn't know what's inside of me, you know, mm-hmm. and and so why would I go through the hell of trying so hard when I'm going to fail anyway? And I think that was what was going through my son's hmm. brain. Why would I go through the hell of trying and getting my hopes up when I'm just going to lose anyway? And so Arjun and I have been on this journey together trying to work on this. And he's come eons. It's just so awesome as a dad to watch him grow. But I always thought like I was the opposite. Like I was the guy who like won. And, I, and I've rallied a lot in my life. And and I realized, though, you know what? Like ultimately, when I went into a rapid, I was afraid that I was going to go into a hole, of course, and maybe, you know, drown or whatever. Of course, that's a fear that you have. But what I was more honestly, I think it was equally afraid was that I I wouldn't respond and react the way I wanted to, that I would let myself down. I would let my friends down and I would not live up to the illusion of who I wanted to be in my in my own mind, in my own ego. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that was the biggest fear I had. And I thought, God, me and AJ were pretty much the same. Interesting. you know, and so I, I what I had to do was to let go of that in kayaking, let go of like, you know, if I had stopped on Everest, I could have just said, you know, OK, I'm not studly blind guy. You know, I'm, I don't have to worry about it anymore. But no, I mean, starting over with this new thing, I realized that like I my fear was that I wouldn't live up to who I wanted to be. Right. And so I had to let go of that in kayaking. And that I think that's sort of at least my attempt to answer your question, because yeah. That, that was the biggest thing for me to say, you know, like, I, I'm okay with shattering that image of, of who I really desperately want to be. And once I could let go of that, man, the whole weight just lifted up and, huh. and I was so, such a better kayaker. That is really interesting. Yeah, I love that. You almost, like you said earlier, you have to kind of die kill you know per, different aspects of your personality in order to kind of grow to the next level and 100%. so you, you killed another aspect of your personality that need to be something that's you know that that's kind of like the martial arts saying you have to kill your ego it doesn't mean you lose your personality or who you are right. you just kill certain ideas and belief systems that your ego is kind of clung to exactly that that's interesting. So that was a great lesson for me. And, you know, and I've worked, you know, No Barriers, our organization, we work with about 5,000 people a, a year. And, uh, oh, cool. you know, we work with people that, like, they've had horrific things happen to them. They've gone out on this journey and they've had horrific things happen mm-hmm. to them. If anyone should crawl under a rock and say this world is really terrible, these people should be the ones doing that. And they don't. You know, some mm-hmm. do, of course, and then they're stuck, you know, mm-hmm. but others don't. They keep their heart open. And, you know, they maintain this sort of hope and, and this uh, this open heart and and they don't get stuck, you know, like mm-hmm. just thinking, OK, the darkness is the familiar place and I'm just going to stay there. Yeah. And so 
you know, I found that like there's the similarities that tie us together are way more profound than than the things that make us different. Working with a lot of these soldiers and a lot of these kids with trauma and so forth, I, you know, it's sort of like we're all part of this big club. Yeah, I love that. And that's really reminds me. I mean, I, I, we recently started an organization called the Courage Foundation. Yeah. It sounds to me like our, our missions are very aligned. And Courage, you know, we're trying to bring um, resiliency and mental toughness training and, and concepts, you know, pr- primarily through the Unbeatable Mind philosophy to, you know, people who really are kind of desperate. And so we started working with prison populations and donating, you know, my goal is to donate literally as many books as possible into the prison systems. <laughs> I, I, I think we've gotten like 2000 in so far through the prison fellowship. And then also working with vets who are really suffering like um, PTSD suicidal type vets. So trying to figure out how to work into that community. It'd be fun to talk about uh, some, you know, collaborating on something together. I'd love to. Cause as yeah. I, I mean, I've having written the book and getting to talk to like really cool thought leaders like you, I found that like we're we're sort of all in this big club together. We're all kind of doing similar things and yeah, uh, just trying to make a difference. Yeah, and just trying to make a difference. And it's really cool because I love being in that. I love being a a part of uh, you know people thinking about ways of making massive impacts in the world. It's really quite fun. So, do you do any speaking? I do do speaking. You know, as like a professional adventurer, blind adventurer. Nobody's throwing a lot of money in my direction. So yeah, you make a living as <laughs> right. a speaker and writing. And I produced a bunch of films, documentary films, okay. like like Jimmy and and so yeah, sort of a piecemeal existence, some endorsements, things like yeah, that. Yeah. It's a fun modern existence. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing that what we can do with the internet and podcasting. I mean, it's it's created all sorts of opportunity. If this was twenty years ago, it'd be a different story for you, I, I imagine. I started, uh, I was a teacher for six years, and in 1997, I wanted to make an opportunity to climb full-time. Mm-hmm. I'd been climbing in the summer. I was a weekend warrior, and I thought I could make a life. In the, and I figured, hey, like I, if I can't do it, then I can always go back to teaching, which I, I loved. I could have done mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I've been doing this thing for, um, coming up this summer will be my 20th year of uh, doing that. So oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have, I would love for you to come speak to our tribe at our annual summit. I mentioned that Jimmy Chin came last year. It'd be awesome to have you out if you can swing it this year. It's the first weekend of December. If not, then maybe next year. So that'd be fun. I'll have Allison follow up with you on that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be terrific. <laughs> so your book, we've got to wrap up here because we've been going for a little while, but your book is called No Barriers, A Blind Man's Journey to Kayak the Grand Canyon. It's more than just, is it more than just the, the journey itself? What what's the focus of the book? Yeah, I think I would have been bored writing about just like here I am kayaking yeah, another mile twenty seven. <laughs> this yeah, happened right. That's so boring. I mean, in a weird way. I mean, the kayaking is like really wild and pretty furious and so forth. Uh, but it, in a way, it was sort of the just the vehicle to telling this story. Right. Because I love rivers. I love mountains. I do experience the view. You know, through my hands through my ears but i think in a way learning to kayak and going and kayaking 277 miles of the grand canyon was in a way my chance to kind of immerse myself in this experience of no barriers which is the way i look at it is it's sort of the process 
that we go through, this growth process that we're all trying to be on, and looking at the elements along the way, what are those elements that we have to confront, that we have to harness? And if we do that, we can sort of better equip ourselves so that we emerge on the other side, not broken, not surviving, but, uh, you know, having grown, having changed in a positive way. And so I wanted to experience that. And I also wanted to write about other people that experience this as well. And so it's not like people I've read about. It's all people that I've come into contact with through my No Barriers programs and experiences from my friend Mark Wellman, who's a paraplegic, uh, first paraplegic to climb El Capitan, wow. doing 7,000 pull-ups wow. up the rock face, to uh, a friend of mine who's a deaf musician uh, who's just crushing it. She mm. cannot hear herself sing. She hears, wow. she feels the vibration through the stage, and she sings in perfect pitch. She writes her own music. Wow. It's like, Amazing. it's insane. That is insane. Now, all the way to soldiers, uh, friends of mine, uh, like my friend Paul Smith, who, uh, you know, got blown up as this, so many soldiers, you know, got hurt in, in the different conflicts and came home and his life sort of spiraled. And, you know, he had and, – and the physical stuff was – he could live with, but he told me, you know, just the fact that he had come home early and he let his – he felt like he had let his team down. You know, he was part of this experience where people relied on him. He was going home early. It just turned into shame and it spiraled in his life and – Anyway, but last uh, year ago, we were up in the Rocky Mountains together and climbing peaks, and he was celebrating all this untapped potential in front of him. And we sat down together before the summit, and he said, Eric, you know, I feel like I've wasted a lot of time in my life, but I I feel lately like I've awakened from a dream, and I, and I know I need a life of purpose. And mm-hmm. he's made these massive changes. You know, he checked himself in. He got off painkillers. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he moved his family out to Colorado for a healthier life. He's working on fitness now with his family. Awesome. And uh, he climbed to one of our 14,000-foot peaks uh, addiction-free uh, in the fall. So just I love working with people who tap into that light. You know, they, they need a catalyst. They need tools. But really, they just want to grow that thing inside. Right. And really, so ultimately, that's what the book is about, celebrating these real people, not like the Kardashians or the, mm. you know, fictional books and movies, you know, that like kind of almost steer you wrong, but real people who are struggling and flailing and bleeding mm. to their way forward. So the, to me, that's inspiring. That is incredibly inspiring. We should, you should do a movie about the book. That would be a terrific <laughs> screenplay. <laughs> well, we'll just put that out there to the world, huh? <laughs> nice. I like it. <laughs> awesome. Eric, it's been a true honor Really has. Um, I, I can't wait to meet you in person, hopefully, you know, either at our summit or in some other venue, maybe through the Courage Foundation, we can or- organize something to do with vets or, or something along those lines. I really, you know, I think you're doing amazing work. Uh, I honor you for your courage. So thank, thank you. you. It's yeah. awesome to and, be with you. Yeah. And thanks for your time. I know everyone listening to this is going to really, really appreciate it. They can find you. Uh, do you have like the normal Twitter sphere stuff? Yeah, and then go to touchthetop.com, and um, they can also learn about uh, No Barriers through nobarriersusa.org. Okay, good. And we encourage people to to get involved and uh, and be a part of this movement that so many of us are trying to build. And yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 a real it's really fun. It's all active and fun and family friendly. So awesome. yeah, learn learn more about us. 
Okay, touchthetop.com and nobarriersusa.org. Is that what you said? That's it. Awesome. Don't go away, Eric. Let me close the show. Thank you very much. All right, everyone, go support Eric. Read the book. I've got the book. I've thumbed through it. I, I just it got buried, I have to admit, in about 150 books. <laughs> Eric's laughing. I literally have my, my wife just basically armbarred me to get a Kindle. So I stopped buying physical books. I have this weird addiction. I have like piles and piles of books and I read five at a time. And I, I finished the, the equivalent of a book, you know, every three or four days. But yours got kind of stuck in the bottom. And it, I honestly, you know, was hoping to read it before this episode, but at least I'm It's a it. long one. Is so it? Yeah. It's sort of different from the trends of, uh, you know, everything. My publisher was like, write a short book and yeah, 400 no, I, pages later I finished up. So you got to commit. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> Writing is a, it's a big project. I'm in the middle of a couple book projects right now. It's, it's not easy. It takes a lot of energy, a lot of focus. So I commend you for that. And I'm going to dig it out because you really I call it torture. What's that? I call it torture. The <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit yeah. of torture, but that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Right? Right. <laughs> All right, everyone. So let's go support Eric. Go to uh, go check out his foundation, uh, NoBarriersUSA.org, TouchTheTop.com. I highly encourage you to read his book, No Barriers, and uh, hopefully check our, you know, get on our email list so you can find out whether he's going to be speaking at our summit because that would be really neat if we could get him out here from Colorado to California. And the uh, Unveil Mind Summit is the first weekend of December. So go to UnvealMind.com and check that out. And uh, as usual, uh, do the work daily. Show up one day, one lifetime. Get on the mat. Get on your bench. Practice your big four skills. And, uh, you know, be unbeatable. Who we are. Coach Devine out. Lock it low, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back. The pride of the fleets. The bright swinging frogmen of the UDT. Eric, thanks, man. That was terrific. Super cool to meet you, buddy. Yeah, I'll, I'm sure we'll get to meet in person. Yeah, I look forward to it. Um, All right. If you can do the summit, I'll have Allison reach out, and but you know either this year or next, and and I'm going to connect you uh, or ever, whoever you ask Allison to connect with to my executive director for the Courage Foundation because I think we could do some cool things there. We have yeah. a um, oh this might be interesting to you. We do have uh, one of my uh, initiatives this year in September is to we're going to hike 300 kilometers along the trail that King Leonidas took to. Um, with his 300 Spartans to go fight King Xerxes, you know, wow, cool. and impede the Persian invasion of Europe. You know, wow. do you know that story? How cool yes. that is? Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to hike that same trail. Uh, you know, we're going to go about 30 clicks a day. And when, gonna, now, when is that again? It's in September, like the second to third week, like 10 yeah. days in September. We're doing it as a fundraiser, you know, so we're asking people who want to go to raise some money for it, but if you have any interest in going with us, that would be a really cool, cool adventure too. I, I love, look, that's you're speaking my language. I, I love adventures like that. I think. Uh, I'm heading to the Himalayas. I think uh, in um, early October. Are you? Uh, kind of a big commitment. I have two teenagers, so it's going to be a hard one. I'm talking about it with my wife, but she's usually really cool. But it's a seven week expedition going up into this unexplored valley between Tibet and Nepal and climbing wow. these. Uh, there are four. 
uh, 6,000 meter peaks that have never been climbed before. And really uh, any climber has a dream of like first descents, you know, uh, right. like, like Jimmy. So, um, I'm probably going to head off for seven weeks and eat rice and lentils and get skinny, <laughs> which is all good. I want to get skinny actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a side, a side benefit, huh? Yeah. It's a side benefit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That sounds terrific. Yeah. That's so cool. All right, and the man. guy that's uh, leading the expedition has a uh, stage four prostate cancer, and uh, you know, so he doesn't know how long he's going to be around, and he wants to go have this really profound experience with a good group of people uh, in the time he has left. And uh, so, wow. yeah, I thought you can't kind of beat that experience in life. So I think I'm, I think I'm drawing to towards making that decision. Wow, that sounds yeah. terrific. Yeah, you should but, do that, uh, man. If you did that, then the 300 would be out because then that would be another two weeks. I know, I know. Yeah. I'm finding the same thing. There's this, It's like life is becoming just a series of choices between cool yeah. and cooler. <laughs> cool and cooler, right, exactly. You know? But that's good. That's, that's uh, you know, you're lucky if that's the case. I totally agree. We are blessed in a lot of ways. All right. All right, Eric. Thanks very much, buddy. Talk to you. Thanks. Yeah, look forward to seeing Bye. you in person. Bye-bye. All right, see you. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. 